Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaglupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time, so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Welcome to the Common Good Hour. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I'm Roger Zaglupe. Today, we're going to continue our conversation on this notion of encounter and relationship. And this past week, we started that conversation really focusing on three key points. First, that encounter begins with relationship. Second, also that encounter calls us to the margins and that a lot of times it requires that we move beyond ourselves, beyond our own worlds and our own safe enclosures to do work. Uh, and oftentimes, especially when you're in a, like a health or human service or education nonprofit, uh, supporting individuals who are often excluded or otherwise um, marginalized in society. And then encounter also invites us into transformation. And so we have to be open to the ways in which, you know, not only are nonprofit workers are often sort of see themselves as change makers, as someone who wants to go out and change and make a difference in the world, but also that uh, through encounter and through relationship that we too and our lives are also going to be fundamentally changed. And so being open to that opportunity of transformation within ourselves and in our organizations and communities. And so today we are going to talk about the importance then of being open and making yourself open for and available to moments of encounter. You know, Drew, I, I feel like this is actually a really great topic to discuss today and, and any day because making ourselves open requires vulnerability. And so when we are vulnerable, it can be a really scary thing for folks, right? We, we are putting ourselves out there and making connections sometimes require us to put ourselves out there. And so I, there's a feeling of that if you're vulnerable, um, you know, you're risking a lot. And so you know, I, I encourage our listeners and, and anyone, uh, especially if, if, if they're in the helping profession, is that that is part of, of doing the work, is, is trying to balance that area of vulnerability that will come up um, because being vulnerable makes connections. It's so true. And I think um, I'll share a story to kind of kick us off on this conversation for today about a moment of encounter that I remember from when I first kind of dove into this work. And that was when I was a high school teacher. I taught high school Spanish in Pascagoula, Mississippi, um, a small town on the Gulf Coast. And I was teaching in a community that I was an outsider to. I hadn't really had a lot of experiences of small town life or, or, or life in the South either. And so when I came to teach Spanish, which is also a language that was not spoken by most of my students, there was a sort of like, this guy's kind of different, you know, and how does, how do you build relationships across some of those perceived barriers that are there? And I had one student, I'll say for the purposes of this story, we'll call him Frank, um, that I really struggled to connect to in the classroom. He had certainly the academic ability to be successful, but whether it was the fear of trying something new or not wanting to stand out in front of his peers or whatever it may have been, he tended to sort of close himself off from other interactions in the classroom. And after my first semester of teaching, I started coaching soccer with the school team and it was kind of interesting because diving into into coaching, I was sort of navigating two worlds with the students, my world as a coach and also world as a teacher. And I remember, you know, that 
one practice, Frank had this student that I was struggling to reach was also on the team. And I remember during one practice, we really started to play a lot more aggressively. I joined the students in the scrimmage that we were having and Frank and I bumped shoulders a lot and we went in hard for tackles. And I don't even remember like who won the game or what happened, but I remember we kind of got into it a little bit on the soccer field. And the next day in the classroom, really everything had changed. You know, um, the student, you know, called me coach instead of Mr. Reynolds in the classroom. Um, and he, I noticed that he started to kind of bring the discipline and the energy and the passion that he had for soccer into the classroom. And he brought really his full self into the classroom. It was almost like he felt that a part of him that maybe wasn't able to be communicated, you know, across a classroom desk was now a bridge was now built between uh, me and the student that then allowed for him to start uh, participating in, in new ways in the classroom. And I bring this example up because really it's a very ordinary and simple example. I think sometimes if we think about the term encounter and we think, oh, we have to kind of go outside of ourselves and go, you know, I talked about, you know, going to the margins, for example, earlier of society or reaching out to people who are otherwise excluded. And we can sometimes think that that's like a really hard or difficult or outside, you know, how does that conversation kind of happen? And I share this example because it was actually a very ordinary one that came up in so far as that we were just playing soccer on the field. And all I had done was decide to coach soccer with the students and connect in this way. And so I think that, you know, for me, when I think about how do we create moments of encounter within our nonprofit sector, it doesn't have to be really complicated or difficult or challenging, um, but it just requires saying yes and being open to the opportunities before us to build relationships, bridges, and connections with the people who we are here to serve. I think that's a really uh, neat example of how it really it can be really simple to make that connection with somebody. In this case, you utilize the soccer field. You, you join the scrimmage. You were part of the process. And, and the field was, it was a level playing field, for example, right? So everybody was playing and, and, and scrimmaging and, and having fun, learning through the process. And it sounds like the next day, Frank just developed this sense of respect and trust in you because you were part of the process. You weren't just the coach on the sideline giving orders to everybody or, or pointing out things that, that a player wasn't doing the right way. You actually were joining and probably coaching them through that way. And yeah, I really, it sounds like Frank did say, wow, um, he really is part of the team. He's our coach, but he's all, he also wants to be part of this process, this team. And and that, that's a really great story, uh, Drew. I appreciate you sharing that with us. It, it, it brings me to think about other ways that uh, encounter can happen. And, you know, in your situation, you were talking about individuals coming together. You know, I, this reminds me of how can organizations come together. Uh, before, the, before the pandemic uh, happened last year, I was facilitating. I, a colleague and I were starting a, um, a parenting group for an organization at an organization, Camino Community Center. And this was a parenting group for uh, Spanish-speaking parents and how can they uh, develop stronger and deeper relationships and connections with their children. And so one of the ways that we were trying to get the word out and recruit was 
through connecting connecting with another agency that was already that had already established a relationship with the uh, Latinx community. And so I reached out to communities and schools. Um, my sister, um, Miss, we call her lovingly Miss Miss E. Um, her name is Marianella Echeverria. Shout out to my sister, to my big sister. <laughs> and uh, but she had developed a relationship with an elementary school. Um, Hidden Valley Elementary School through communities and schools. So the community trust had so much trust. They, they have so much trust in my sister. And so when my sister approached some parents about, hey, there's this other group happening as well at this community center, they they said, okay, Miss E, if you say it's good, then we're gonna, we trust you. And so we were able to uh, recruit parents for our parenting uh, program as well. And then once those parents became involved, they told other people in the community. So it was just a, it's a really good example of how, you know, encounter happens and how encounter builds relationships in order to help sustainability. Yeah. And, and what's I think so interesting in that story too, is just the willingness to be open and to work within kind of the extended networks that we have existing already. Right. So like how, who are the people that we we know within our networks? How can we stretch those networks in new ways? And how can we create opportunities for regular interaction for people? And, you know, in the case of the story I was telling, you know, it was just about building a bridge on a soccer field. And here it's building a bridge through a new program or initiative uh, that can come together. And nonprofits are all involved in that work now. We're all thinking about ways to continue to build and do these things. But I think that thinking about it as saying yes to opportunities that are in front of us and looking for opportunities in ordinary interactions uh, to build relationships with um, you know, for the people who are served by our organizations, but also the people who are just members or parts of the community uh, can really be a powerful way to uh, begin and sort of jumpstart the kind of work that's at the core of, of our missions. And so in summary for our conversation today, as you reflect on your own practice and your own work in the nonprofit sector, encounter, think of encounter as, as two key things happening. One is that it happens through in ordinary interactions um, and second is that we we have to make ourselves available to encounter um, other people. And we have to do that by saying yes and being open to relationship, open to new community relationships and interactions with others. And so thank you for um, this conversation on Encounter. And we are going to be coming up in just a few minutes with our interview with Soul Food Cipher and with Flux Projects. But before we do that, we have to dive into the trivia question. So let's get started with Bet You Don't Remember. Bet You Don't Remember. And now it is time for trivia. Bet You Don't Remember is the 80s, 90s trivia game from the Common Good Hour. We ask the question and you, the listener, test your knowledge of the music, movies, and culture of the 80s and 90s. So, hey, Roger, can you uh, ask our trivia question this week? Well, Drew, I don't mind if I do. In 1991, John Singleton wrote and directed his critically acclaimed film, Boys in the Hood, which he was nominated for Best Director and Best Screen Screenplay at the 64th Academy Awards making him the youngest at 24 and first African-American to be nominated. The cast included Cuba Gooden Jr., Lawrence Fishburne, Regina King, Angela Bassett, and Ice Cube. Betcha didn't know that before Ice Cube became Ice Cube, he was just a kid from South Central LA whose parents gave him this birth name. 
Ooh, that's a good one, man. Oh, I, I cannot wait to see the responses come in on this one. I uh, know we're going to test the knowledge. So if you think you know what Ice Cube's birth name is, post your answer to this episode's social media posts on Twitter, Insta, or Facebook. We'll randomly select one respondent who will receive a free Common Good Hour sticker in the mail. You know, better yet, how about you just write your answer on the back of a fresh $20 bill and mail it to Rogers Farm? You know, you can just send it along there and uh, he'll, he'll collect the $20 bills and, you know, just put Ice Cube's real name right on right on Andrew Jackson's face on that $20 bill. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Help me feed the pigs. <laughs> and fund the podcast. All right. So on our next episode, we will reveal the answer to this treasury question and then ask you another. But of course, before we wrap up, we also have to give you the answer to last week's question, which reminds uh, uh, reminded us that the Beastie in Beastie Boys is actually an acronym that stands for what? So Roger, can can you tell the audience the answer to last week's trivia question? I certainly can. And we didn't have uh, a response. It was a tough one. I will say afterwards, I thought, man, that's a really tough question for somebody to answer. So I did have some people reach out to me, but they admitted looking it up. Oh, well, <laughs> well maybe we could, you know what, from now on, listeners, if you want to look it up, that's fine. Uh, you know, we, we won't, well, we're not grading you, so it's okay to do that. So, the answer for this uh, trivia question would be Beastie is an acronym for boys entering anarchist states towards internal excellence. You know, my guess was uh, betcha eat alligators, still the iguana elevates. That's really what <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> well, since we didn't have any winners this week or Drew, maybe we could modified and if we had somebody who did look it up but they got it that could be our winner send us a message send us send us an email tag us online and we'll, and we'll get you one after the fact post facto common good hour sticker coming right to you so um, as a reminder, as we wrap up here, if you uh, know the answer to this week's question on the birth name of Ice Cube, find the Common Good Hour on Facebook, Insta, or Twitter, and share your answer in the comments of one of our posts or make a post of your own and tag us, and you'll have a chance to win a Common Good Hour sticker. Thanks again for playing along with us as we took a trip down memory lane with Bet You Don't Remember. Today, we are joined by three amazing nonprofit professionals based here in Atlanta, Georgia. First, we have Ann Archer Dennington, founding director of Flux Projects, an organization that produces temporary public art projects that connect and grow artists and audiences in Atlanta through the creative power of place. She has also led three previous organizations and worked across commercial, government, and nonprofit art sectors. And welcome to the Common Good Hour. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. We also have Floyd Hall, cultural producer and media strategist from Atlanta, Georgia, and brand manager at Flux Projects. His professional work often relates to the intersection of art, media, and technology as platforms. As an artist, he is interested in the process of how we come to define and design ourselves, and is passionate about how history, culture, and art blend together to construct narratives of place. Floyd, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you for having me. And finally, we also welcome Alexander Costwan Acosta, Atlanta-based producer, multidiscipline artist, and community builder. 
Alex is the executive director of Soul Food Cipher, a community arts organization that builds individuals and communities through the power of freestyle rap by hosting cipher events, artist development, and workshops throughout the country. Alex, welcome to you as well. Hey, thank you for having me. Awesome. So we're so glad to have um, a, a really awesome and dynamic panel today and having three guests is a, a real fun treat for us at the Common Good Hour. So we'll start us off maybe with Ann and Floyd. And I was wondering if you all could introduce our listeners to the work of Flux Projects and just tell us a little bit about yourselves. So Flux Projects uh, is really in the the space of, of creating experiences that connect the public um, to amazing art, art moments, things that inspire uh, wonder, curiosity, and um, really also help create platforms for artists to take their careers to new heights and expand what they're doing as well. I think Flux Projects is in this space of trying to, to be a catalyst for, for wonder and interesting things on the, the sort of the world around us in Atlanta. And I think for for artists, I think we've been a really interesting organization in that we've tried to create space for artists to really reimagine what they do and find new and different ways to do it and hopefully grow and expand their art practices. And I think over the last 10 years, that's looked like, um, you know, large scale public artwork like Flux, um, you know, in some of Atlanta's most familiar uh, environments and uh, really trying to create amazing memories um, and really helping to change how people understand and experience what we define as the public. So Floyd, I'm, I'm interested too in this, this idea of how we shape our understanding of what the public is through art. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, for somebody who's maybe not familiar, what, what, I think what's interesting is that your, your work encounters people in their everyday circumstances. And at people who might not otherwise encounter art or see art or, or even recognize it as art in their daily lives uh, might have a new experience through this kind of work. So can you talk a little bit about what that looks like for people who might not always see um, or might not be in the arts world? Well, I think it's really just about thinking about the expectation of art. Um, I don't, I mean, I think people are used to art. People have great experiences with art but usually those are in defined experiences. If you are making art yourself, if you are buying art for your home or your office. So I think people have a pretty strong understanding of what art is, but I think it's the expectation that happens in, in public art where you sort of shift what people are expecting to encounter, especially in a space that they may be familiar with and you can change their experience of that, you know, you, you can you can change that experience of that familiar place in a way that really just expands their imagination and um, the possibility of, of, of what could be. Sometimes that sort of art for art's sake, um, but also that involves art with a message or, or trying to create a moment where you're wanting to draw attention to something. So I think it's about especially in the, the, the public space, sort of taking what is what is ordinary and adding something to that moment where people are um, are left changed. Yeah, Floyd, I, I love that you said um, you, you guys are about creating amazing memories through art, uh, through the, this infusion of 
of creativity, of tapping into individuals, you know, pretty much into their minds. Like our, our minds are such finite, you know, you know, organs that, you know, our brains are finite organs that there's so much that we don't tap into sometimes. And I'm so glad that y'all exist as an organization to um, encourage people to tap into that creativity. And um, I just want to thank you for what you guys are doing. Um, I want to ask Anne uh, if she can share a bit about the history of Flux Projects. Uh, so this is sort of a twofold question. Um, can you share a little bit about how Flux Projects came to be? And then what need did y'all see in the community that led to the creation of this in incredible organization? Yes, yeah, so we credit Lewis Corrigan as our founder. And um, Lewis had been living in San Francisco and noticing um, the environment around him and how vibrant the arts were and moved back to Atlanta and wondered why we didn't have the same. And so there were um, five of us that came together and formed the organization. And it was a group that had been working primarily in visual arts for a number of years and felt like Atlanta had an amazing um, creative culture, but that it was largely invisible. And so, um, and when we went to things that it was sort of the same 200 people every time we went we had a limited audience with, you know, in limited visibility. And so our three founding goals, which really hold true here today, were to create opportunities for artists. We thought our artists were as good as anywhere. They just weren't having the opportunity to act upon their visions. Um, to broaden the audience for the arts, which speaks to a lot about why we were in public space, because we felt like if we could um, put art where people were, they would, um, they would have these engagements that hopefully sparked them to follow those artists back to more traditional venues. And then to make the city a more creative place in which to live. And, you know, we felt like that, um, that cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago had this overlay of creative energy that was possible here. It just needed a space in which in which to thrive. And so our goals was really to give that space. And I think it was as much about um, a shift that we wanted to see in the city as it was about starting out and saying, we want to create public art and how should we do that? So this week too, we're focusing on this notion of encounter. And the last couple of episodes, we've talked about it a lot. And I was really struck in your mission, the way you talk about, you know, bringing art and artists together. And so can you talk a little bit about how through public art projects, you're able to create opportunities for people, perhaps from different backgrounds, from, you know, different worlds to come together and build new relationships. And so can you talk about the role of art in that process? Yeah. So um, for us, um, bringing people together to a physical space is, is sort of very central to our work, which has made this year a bit of a challenge. But um, we believe that if you, that sort of a looking at art kind of as an equalizer. So you can bring people together from different age groups, different walks of life, and you put them in a place, and then you give them a shared experience. And art has this ability to disrupt our expectations. Um, to be surprising and and that disruption sort of breaks our expectations and sort of opens our minds to new possibilities and it's this sort of 
putting people in a position of being open to new ideas and then putting them with different people and in new settings. And this shared experience becomes really valuable. I mean, suddenly there are people that you might not have expected to encounter or you might walk past them every day on the sidewalk, but suddenly you're sort of in one space with your attention focused on one thing and you find that you have this shared moment. And that can be a moment that is about, like Floyd said, just art for art's sake. It could be a moment about the city or a place. And people exit that having had, you know, I guess having a, a common ground upon which to build new relationships or new ideas. You know, I think it's interesting that, you know, this whole concept of encounter involves um, intentional connection. So how does how do individuals intentionally connect with their community? But then also, how does the community intentionally connect with other communities, right? So, you know, we, we, we live in a society where we have all these different communities living within the greater community. And so how are these communities connected with one another? Well, I was just going to say that I think that part of it's intentional and part of it is not. So we intentionally put something somewhere, but we're we have always chosen places that already had an audience. So we were never putting art somewhere and saying we hope this draws people to experience a new place. It's we're putting we're putting art in places that have an audience, often that people know well. Some of our audience, of course, is going to be drawn to our work and follow it from location to location, but other people are going to stumble upon it completely, you know, unknown and just find themselves in this situation. And that is really magical. Um, as Floyd alluded to, you know, art kind of has this, um, I think this shadow or this memory on a space. And so it, we, I, we do believe that it means that people will never see that space the same way again. But some of it, some of our work is people just stumbling upon it in the, in, during the course of their daily lives. So thanks for giving us such awesome information about the work that y'all are doing. I mean, I, I really want to head down to Atlanta now and just spend the whole week down there. Uh, once everything starts simmering down, Drew, get ready, get that room ready for me. I'm heading down there. You, and, you know, uh, we, we got rid of our guest room because of the pandemic and I turned it into a podcast studio. So you just bring your mic and, and we'll, we'll record some episodes already. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to shift a little bit here and um, I want to have a conversation with cost. So Let's talk about Soul Food Cipher. What's, what's, what's incredible about what we're doing right now, having all of us together in the same interview, is that there are a lot of common threads about how art, speech, and music bring people together. So Cost, can you share more about Soul Food Cipher and how you bring people together through speech and the positive aspects of hip hop and rap music? Yeah, my pleasure. So before we begin, I'd like just to give a general overview and a definition of what a cipher is. And the cipher is a circle in which a art form can take place. And it's agnostic of any particular type of art form. For example, uh, most people's first introduction to ciphers are actually breakdancing ciphers. So if you've ever seen people breakdance, they take turns one after one another, each break, um, what we call them b-boys in the hip hop community, uh, b-boys and b-girls. Each B-boy or B-girl steps in and they show their individual expression and they show their individuality. That's a cipher. But then you also have drum ciphers, drum circles. And what we do with soul food cipher is we have freestyle ciphers or improvised rhyme ciphers. 
So Soul Food Cipher is a community arts organization that began uh, February 26, 2012. And we utilize the freestyle, excuse me, we, we utilize the power of speech to transform individuals and communities. Once uh, Rod Kim, one of my favorite MCs of all time, once said, MC to me means move the crowd. And we, step, we take it one step further and we move communities and we empower MCs to do so with their voices and viewing the cipher as a medium, a medium not only artistically, because the cipher is made up of all the individuals who make it. That's what's so beautiful of it. You have different people expressing different experiences in life. And they say it with different flavors. You hear people with, with accents that might be Northeast or from the Southeast or from New Orleans or from the West Coast. And that just colors it beautifully as a medium. But then it's also a spiritual medium too, because when you freestyle, freestyle is really one of the greatest displays of the faith because people, when they're freestyling, the MCs and rappers, when they're freestyling, they don't know what's coming up next, but you're experiencing it right then and there, but they have the faith of knowing what they say is going to make sense and matter all at the same time. So, you know, we, we want to change the rap on rap with Soul Food Cypher because there's a negative connotation with rap. And I'll be quite honest, there's a negative association with black lives as well. When you listen to popular mainstream rap music, um, for the most part, um, it's negative imagery, over-sexualization, and all of these are tied to the entertainment's inception, which is based in menstrual shows. So what we wanna do is be able to present the cypher and the people in the cypher and rap music and, and, and the craft of freestyle rap is a legitimate art form, one to be celebrated because MCs are a city's greatest historian, as a city's greatest teachers. And we want to be able to reshift that narrative into its right place. So we've been doing this work for nine years now and uh, looking forward to talking to you more about, about this. Absolutely. So I'm curious too, um, Cos, as you talk about, you know, as I was reading through some of the work that you have, you have put together, that you started this work working with quote unquote at-risk youth. And I know there's a lot of, you know, questions yeah. around that term too, but, absolutely. you know, what, can you share a little bit about kind of some of the experiences that you had that led you to create the organization yeah. and how you see the cipher as a medium of, of connecting with people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So my background is actually photography. I went to school at Florida a University studying in photography and more specifically photojournalism. And I work for newspapers in the Southeast and I came back home to Atlanta. I'm originally from Atlanta and I wanted to figure out a way that I could give back. Um, and one of the ways that I did so was by mentoring at the Whiteford Intel Computer Clubhouse, which was in the Edgewood neighborhood in East Atlanta. And uh, many of the kids were labeled, quote unquote, at risk because of uh, the neighborhood that they were in, um, unfortunately, um, for many of them, um, their futures, people put onto them that they were either going to jail or that they, you know, would have X, Y, Z happen. And it was always something bad. But um, when I had gone to Whiteford, I realized that the real way I was able to connect with the kids was not through photography. It was through our shared appreciation for hip hop culture. And inside of the cypher, they told their stories in ways that they normally would not share with um, mentors or they would share with adults. They would actually speak very freely. I'll never forget. There was one, one time we were freestyling and uh, it was one young man and he was freestyling about how he had taken two shots to the leg and how his cousin had laid there dead with two shots in his head. 
And I looked down and I'll never forget, I saw two bullet wounds in his leg. And that was a very real rhyme. And that was, he was speaking about trauma. You know, I heard other tales of, of abandonment. I've heard tales of, of, of heartbreak. But then I also heard them dreaming. I heard them talking about how they would escape, you know, out of their situation through their rhymes, through their ingenuity, through their entrepreneurship. And I realized that it was a source of, of strength. And even furthermore, they used their rhymes as medicine. The cipher was cathartic. And I realized there was a power there. I also realized that this, this, this spanned it generationally. I was also freestyling with some of my closest friends and they were young professionals um, and wanted to figure out how could they still partake in hip hop culture as we continue to get older. So I ended up writing a, a um, proposal to a local community arts center here in Atlanta. Um, uh, it was called Wonder Root at the time and uh, they had this wonderful basement. I never forget the first time that I stepped foot in, in, in Wonder Root's basement. Like I literally saw a vision. I was like, yo, like this feels so hip hop. Like even just talking about Wonder Root, I can still smell the smell there <laughs> of that basement. You know, I can still feel the heat in the summers, like no air conditioning, none of that, but it's just raw. It has like that hip hop slash punk aesthetic. Um, so ended up writing a, a proposal to use the space. We were granted to use the space and we started hosting freestyle ciphers and we brought together some of the young men and women from that community art center along with the young professionals and started to have a broad calling to MCs to come join our cipher. And I will say this, what's unique about Soul Food Cipher is that ciphers are normally seen as ephemeral. There's something that happens and it just dissipates. It comes and then it goes, it's never organized, but that's part of the, the, the joy and the beauty of it. Historically, it's like, oh man, these people are getting together. We're getting together in a circle. And we're going to start rapping, you know, and then it just dissipates, you know, and this is before IG and, you know, um, social media. So it was one of those things where you saw someone rhyme and it was like, man, you shared in their energy. So what we wanted to do with Soul Food Cypher is make a permanent cypher, something that was consistent and that consistency was needed, especially in the young people's lives, because unfortunately, a lot of times they didn't have some of the support structures, um, um, a family or of other things that they needed. And that consistency of having a cypher, a place in which they could come, they could speak, they could be appreciated, they could be loved. We also had snacks and free food there as well for the, for, for, for the kids as well. And we became an anchor in that in, in, in our community. Um, so, you know, over the past nine years, we've grown. We've grown into a um, nonprofit organization, um, hosting ciphers and activations and workshops all throughout the country, including uh, working with experience camps in New York and Pennsylvania, where uh, for the past two years, and then this year we had to do things virtually. But prior to that two years, uh, we sent a team of MCs to work with kids in experience camp who have lost a close loved one. Um, and that was a, a, a sibling or even a parent. And we used the cipher and its cathartic um, principles to be able to connect with the kids in, in culturally um, and socially relevant ways to help them process and also put the words on, on pen. And I had the opportunity to go in the first year that we went. And I mean, it really, really just spoke to our mission and just really, it just, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to to work with them and partner with them, as well as some of our other partners. We've also worked with the Boys and Girls Club of America. Um, we've also teamed up with Sprite um, and the Ophelia Thirst campaign uh, to help promote lyricism and freestyle. Um, we've worked even locally here in Atlanta. We were the first uh, rap organization or any or 
rap based um, organization to work with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And uh, we predated Common, uh, I think by two or three months before, you know, he came and did something with, uh, <laughs> with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. But we've had an opportunity to also headline at the High Museum during Culture Shock. And also one of my fondest memories is actually working with Flux. We uh, presented in 2015 during Flux Night, uh, right in the old 44 neighborhood. And we did a cipher right in front of the birth home of Martin Luther King. So uh, that's a little bit of, of what we've done. Wow. I mean, uh, we could have like multiple episodes with y'all on and it would still be so much new information that we would gather just from hearing about your experiences. And you had mentioned costs that um, you had a collaboration with Flux Projects. So how do you guys know each other? Was that the first time that y'all interacted with each other or, or is there a little bit of a deeper history? Wow. I'm, I'm searching. So it's crazy. I've, I've worked with Anne in the, in the arts community, everything that she was talking about as far as galvanizing and bringing the, the, the community together is true. We've, we've been on uh, committees to, to, to um, spark action. Um, you know, here in the Atlanta community, especially around arts issues, cultural issues as well. Uh, and I also met Floyd, um, speaking of Wonder Root a little bit earlier, uh, when Floyd was working at Wonder Root. And, you know, we've been closely connected ever since, even so much that now Floyd is our chair of Soul Food Cipher. So Floyd is actually that glue between Flux and Soul Food, Soul Food Cipher. Indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've had the, the pleasure of knowing Alex for I mean, almost at the beginning of, of the Soul Food Cypher journey, I think that's when we, we we first met. And since then, always a big fan and and hopefully, uh, you know, a, a strong supporter of, of what Soul Food Cypher has been about. I've seen them grow and expand and do all the amazing things that, they, that you heard Alex talk about. And um, currently serving as, as, as chairperson of um, the board and really just glad to, you know, I take it as a, a privilege um, to be part of the organization in that way. But really, it's the work of the amazing MCs who've done so many different things and been ambassadors in a way. I think that's really been one of the most um, um, admirable things that I think I can say about Soulful Cypher is that the organization and the members have been ambassadors for hip hop culture in Atlanta. You know, in a, in a space where hip hop culture has become mainstream culture, I think you know, it's really important to have folks on the ground doing amazing work. And I think tying that to Flux Projects, I mean, I, I think I'm a bit of a, of a human sort of glue between the two organizations, but I think sort of understanding the the uh, the impact that Flux Projects has always sought to make in its work and understanding how that happens, I think that there's just another, there's a lot of natural overlap between, I think, the, the intention between uh, Flux Projects and the intention of Soul Food Cipher that makes it really uh, beautiful when both organizations can come together and, and do some some uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, so Floyd had asked me earlier, like how I knew you, Alex, and I, I, you know, I had, was like, wow, you know, I don't remember the moment that I met you, but somehow I was like, I've, I've just known you sort of, you know, since we started doing this work. So we, Flux Projects at our first project in um, February of 2010. And um, in our, I would say like in our first two years, I don't think we had any spoken word artists, but it was shortly thereafter. And I feel like you have, 
I don't know, you have been a real friend and led, you know, pointed us, you know, um, helped us out with projects, recommended artists for projects. Um, and I, you know, I feel like, you know, when you talk about using, um, you know, rap as lyricists, but also, you know, for us also is poets. So I think of the project where um, I was contacting you, um, Rail Talk, and, you know, it was, can you recommend writers that will come out and engage with this project? And they happen to also be rappers and lyricists, but we were looking at them for their written word, which was really amazing, but they were able to, this was a project where um, we partnered with MARTA and the Atlanta Design Festival and two Dutch designers came over and they, very straightforward project, they put out magnetic letters where um, people who were writing on MARTA could send messages, write messages for people. And we did this um, in a 10th Street station in, in the West End. And, but we knew that we were probably going to need um, some instigators to get things rolling. And so we worked in each neighborhood with writers and poets. And the amazing thing about the people that, that were also rappers is they were able to you know, do, do the written word, but then they could turn around and engage the audience. And we had some great times on MARTA platforms. And I just, I think that the way they take that power of words and not only bounce it between one another, but then pull an audience and viewers into that, into that circle and feeling was just, was so apparent in that, in that, on that platform. And then, you know, even going now to a project that we're working on with Charmaine Minifield, who um, is, she's doing a project that celebrates the ring shout, which is, um, an Af you know, an African spiritual practice out of West Africa that predates slavery. And she's looking at the lineage of that practice in contemporary African-American creative practices, including music, dance, and spoken word. And she talks about the ring shout as, you know, as it's a cipher. It is. And, and you know, she says, basically, you know, she basically anytime women get together it's a cipher and and she so i think it's that um from some of these i have i just i gain a greater appreciation for the work that you do and actually what that means outside of that basement or that group of boys and men all the time yep. and, and you've been a large part of helping to educate me on that and and also i have to say since we were talking earlier about um, the 80s and 90s, making sense of some of the things from my youth. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. thank this you. is this is just awesome. Like, I want to I want to move to Atlanta. Although my wife will say no, but I just now I'm just have to purposely go visit Atlanta as often as I can. So I would really love to meet y'all. This this is this fits in with Drew's and I vision of encounter and how these last couple of episodes we've been talking about encounter and, um, you know. It, Drew and I have a colleague, Dr. V, who I know she's going to love this episode because Dr. V and I have presented, um, and, and previously we presented at a, at a national conference about um, the basically the evolution of hip hop and how hip hop and social work, because I'm, I'm a social worker by, by trade, mm -hmm. how social work and hip hop are threaded together mm -hmm. and how um, hip hop has always been like the life basically the lifeblood of social work um, because the, the, the values 
that social work has also resonate through the power of hip hop and the lyrics. You know, you're going back to, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the message, I, I use that song and I use that video in, in, in a couple of courses that I teach at UNC Charlotte in the School of Social Work because it's, it's, it's telling, it has great, you know, the track is great, um, the beats are great, but you have to listen to the lyrics and it, they're telling you a message. This is our life. This is what, this is the day in and day out for us every day. And that's, you know, that's evolved in, you know, other music that's come out of the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands and even now. So I'm so excited that we're having this discussion and, and uh, can't wait to really like physically meet y'all one day. Are you familiar with Last Poets? Um, no. I highly recommend checking out Last Poets. They have an okay. album called Catharsis, and it actually predates what is considered the birth of hip-hop culture, August 11, 1973. They have an wow. album that came out in 1972, and there's a track on it called E Pluribus Enum, and the cadence is rhyming cadence. Um, it kind of sounds like, um, what is it? Um, we know you rappers, want to sing. <laughs> it it kind of sounds like Rapper's Delight, the way that they're rapping, but it's over, you know, the conga drum. Um, ah. And the lyrics are very socially conscious, so it actually predates the message. So I actually highly recommend checking out Last Poets. I'm on it now. Uh, I, I saw you reaching that concert. You got some instruments over there? It will blow your mind. <laughs> you know, we have talked a lot today about, you know, I think one common thread that comes is that all of these experiences are communal experiences. And a lot of times I think, you know, I oftentimes think of the word ritual when we talk about bringing community together, ritual as a language of community. And so I kind of, we've had a, a lot happen in 2020 from BLM to the pandemic to politics and, and everything else. So can you talk a little bit about how art and cipher and public expressions of of bringing people together through art become an expression of community values or reflect community values? I feel like artists are our best storytellers. And I, I credit, so I came out of a gallery when I started my career and it really instilled in me this idea of the artist as a sage and that, um, you know, the, the artists are tapped into something universal and oftentimes it's the message and the work comes through them as much as being done by them. And so one of the reasons that I think Influx Projects work, we sort of um, always also champion art for art's sake, is I think a lot of times the work that is art for art's sake has, um, is saying something that maybe the artist couldn't otherwise pinpoint at that moment, but it is still yet much to be revealed. And that is kind of how I, you know, see artists as always able to best tell our stories and not only um, illuminate, you know, where we need to improve, but point, or point us to our higher selves. I want to piggyback off of Anne. Uh, great art has ability to produce and breed empathy because great art really speaks on the human condition. It speaks on emotion and it's something that we can all relate to. Um, but furthermore, and what I'm going to say is not representative of Soul Food Cipher or, you know, that of organization this is my, you know, own opinion and even, you know, my, my own thought. Um, but to me, hip hop didn't start off 1973, South Bronx, you know, August 11, Sedwick and Cedar. 
it was something that has been going on long before then. And I actually, you know, tie a lot of this to a lot of what Charmaine Minifield is working on as far as the cipher being like a ring shout. Um, when we really look at African practices, all of this, all of the drum, all of the singing, the dance, all of that together is something that has survived through the Middle Passage. And I will also argue that that is part of our medicine for surviving as Black people in America. So when we talk about ritual, when we talk about art, it's at the core of our spiritual practices and is also at the core of our survival. So honestly, like how important is the cipher? It's very important, it's essential, it's survival to, to, to say that I matter, my, my, my life matters and to make rhyme out of reason. When we really break it down, when Black people were brought here to America, we were stripped of the language of our own tongue, of our own language. We weren't taught to read and write, but yet we've mastered the language so much that we can now make music and rhyme out of it. But there's also a reaffirming and using rhyme as, as, as casting the spells of, of making things happen, bringing things to fruition. You know, one of the, the, the biggest critiques of rap music is, man, why are they bragging? Why is, you know, why is he or she always talking about what he or she has, this and that? Like part of that is manifestation, but then really a bigger part of that is in a, in a, in a society that breaks down, you know, black, brown people, it's saying that I'm amazing, I'm great, is positive upliftment coming from self as well. So when we talk about these artistic practices, it's ritual in a spiritual sense because it is tied to Africa, it's tied to drum, but it's also reaffirming and ritualistic to, to say that my life matters and to, to, to practice it in a public space as well. So going back to, to Cool Herc, I believe that Cool Herc actually did something much bigger than create a musical genre. I believe that 1973, August 11th, he unified the African diaspora by using two turntables and continuing those breaks. He looped the funkiest part of the record, the breaks, and had them continue. But with that, it's the drums and that's key. By having those drums played, playing, he unified the Puerto Ricans that were in the crowd, the Jamaicans in the crowd, because he's originally from Jamaica, the, the Black Americans in the, in the crowd, uh, the Cubans in the crowd, all of those that were affected and impacted by the African diaspora, they heard the drum, the talking drum, and reacted. And it set off a cultural revolution. Um, and again, that goes back to ritual, going back to us gathering together, block parties, all of those things in, in community. But uh, it's a source of, of, of medicine as well. It's cathartic. Floyd, I wasn't sure if you wanted to add anything to that. Um, you know, I just think that I mean, Alex and, and I think Ann captured it beautifully, but I'll just say say this. I think that um, as as humans in in this society or or previous societies, that sort of the, the continuum of of our civilizations have, have evolved. I think that artists have always been the the documenters of of these civilizations, of culture. And I think that as long as we have culture to document that the artists will be the the ones who help us understand you know what that culture is and what it was and i think through those rituals through the, the practices both um spiritual and secular and all those spaces in between that i think that continuum you know um and evolution of of that practice is what helps us continue to tap into who we were before and who will, who will will be uh, many moons from now. So I think that um, whether it happens in the 
you know, in a in a in a, uh, a small basement in East Atlanta, or whether it happens, you know, on the block in in the South Bronx, or in any public space or private space, I think that again, it's, it's the artists who are continuing on this continuum in this tradition that really help us understand who who we are and who we're going to be. Well, thank you all for this incredible discussion. Um, what recommendation would you give to other nonprofit leaders about getting opportunities for encounter, for bringing people together who might not have otherwise had the chance to encounter? Uh, what have you found that works in your organizations? Well, I, I can just say that um, just one thing for us has been asking questions and, and listening. So uh, something that comes immediately to mind for me is we were doing a series of um, professional development workshops with artists um, around 2015, and artists are a key component of our of our audience. And we, so I just asked him at the end of one of these workshops, you know, what do you want us to do next? Like, what's important to you? And it was we were working at that point with an artist named Nick Cave, um, not the musician, but the performance artist who is one of the biggest names in our field. And just like simultaneously, they were all like, we want to meet Nick Cave. And so we um, we set up a time, uh, sort of a cocktail party for them to meet and then to sit down and get to meet him. And he spoke for over an hour, answering their questions, talking about being a young artist, talking about creating a career not in New York. Um, and it was it was so moving and he was so generous, but that is that was so easy for us to do, but it wasn't on my radar until I asked and and they responded. And so I think sometimes um, we can forget how many resources we have at our disposal and how valuable it would be to open those up. I'll add to that. In the arts, there's always this pendulum of agency versus permission and mm -hmm. what you have access to and what you can help facilitate. And there's always a little bit of a, of a push pull in terms of asking for permission to do something, but then providing space for someone to really have the agency to do what they do. And I think that for me, I would say it's always just being mindful of that, um, mindful of of granting someone space where they have agency and how you foster that exchange, whether it be organizationally, whether that be with individuals. I think just really trying to understand that we all exist in sort of this arts, you know, ecosystem, whether you're a nonprofit, you know, whether you're a government agency, like there's, there's an ecosystem that's sort of set up that we operate within. Sometimes it feels invisible, um, but I think that the, in understanding that ecosystem and then finding ways to foster agency for people who don't have it or who, or who need to have it, more of it. Um, and then, you know, I think, um, just understanding that, like, I think again, understanding that, that, that balance of agency versus permission and trying to create more agency among a wider range of people, um, and giving them that space. I think that, that feels like, um, a healthy approach to, um, connecting people across community in ways in which they may have not been tied to, um, beforehand. I would say, remember, Remember what got you into the work. 
that can be broken down into your why, why it is you do it, the purpose you do, but then also how you got into the work because how you got into the work was that chance encounter. And remember how it made you feel and how can you replicate that to others? Um, for example, with Soul Food Cypher, I think about some of my first ciphers. I'll give you two examples. Uh, I'm originally born in Atlanta, but briefly moved back to Tampa. When I came back, we moved to a new neighborhood and there was a uh, young man who was probably five years my, my, my senior. And uh, him and his friends were getting uh, ready for a talent show. And I was about five or six at the time. He was maybe, you know, 11 or 12 or so. And they were rehearsing for this talent show. And I remember they had this big boom box, you know, in the hip hop community, we call them ghetto blasters. And they had it on the, on the, on the tail of the hood. And I just remember them like practicing their rhymes. And I was just enchanted by it. I was like, oh my God, like there's a, there's a, there's a magic here. And that has pushed my work for what, 30 years since? Like just remembering that chance encounter and that, that magic, being new to a neighborhood, you know, but finding a sense of community within that, that's an encounter. But then also growing up, I moved to a lot of different schools. I went from majority black schools to majority white schools. And it was when I was in middle school that I moved to a new community it was majority white. And quite frankly and honestly, I felt it was very hostile, especially at that time, because I was one of maybe only maybe 50 or so black kids in the, in, in the, in the, in the school. But I remember, especially around eighth grade, there was what was called the quote unquote black table. And the black table, <laughs> it was the loud table, you know, it was one of the loudest ones in the, in the school. But it was there that I didn't see that as a problem. Society labeled that as a problem. What we were doing, some of the, the kids would start beating on the tables and using like a pen, like a big pen to like make like hi-hats and like using their, their hands and drumming on the tables. I have later come to understand that that is ancestral memory. That's cultural memory for us to be using the drums because drums were essential to us. But for me, that chance encounter of being in a space where we could show our individuality in which we were practicing art forms that were old unbeknownst to us we were replicating that, but that chance encounter was something that stayed with me ever since then. So when we think about, you know, our work and even with the ciphers, you know, we want to be able to replicate that, you know, in a, in a world that is so hostile, we want that experience to feel like the black table, you know, where you can be proud, you can be yourself. But that memory, that sense of remembering what inspired me should be something that I pass on to others and us continuing our spiritual traditions, our sound traditions as well. So that would be my recommendation. So Kos, thank you so much for, you know, sharing so that importance of coming back to your why as a breaking point or an introduction into how we build spaces of encounter. So I'm going to turn that over at this point to uh, my amazing co-host, Roger, who always uh, finishes off our podcast with a fun question about 80s and 90s culture. Thank you so much, Drew. So I am a child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I love the 80s and 90s. If I could go back to the future, um, I would go back to the 80s and 90s. So we don't have a DeLorean and we don't have a flux capacitor, uh, but we, we do we have as our, I mean. <laughs> yeah, we have our <laughs> memories of the 80s and 90s. So my question to y'all is this, and I, normally I would send out some of the questions ahead of time and I apologize, I forgot to send it to y'all. So I'm gonna put you on the spot. 
Um, but y'all are such fast thinking minds and I know you'll get it quickly. So since we are focusing in our, on artwork, artists, lyricists, things that I love, things that I know Drew and I love, my question to y'all is this, what 80s or 90s artists do you connect with the most and why? So for my youth, I think it was Prince and the group of bands and musicians that were around that. Were that that's kind of the backdrop. I feel like that was the sort of soundtrack to my youth. And it's also, um, I guess, music that I will return to because I can confess that we listen to a lot of things along the way that I have no interest in listening to now or that really were not, not that great. Um, but but that that is definitely it's definitely one of them. I actually have something for you, Anne. So a little bit earlier okay. before we started the show, uh-huh. uh, I said that I had a surprise for you all. So you all probably see some records behind me. Yeah. I know the listeners can't can't see it, but actually I pulled this out. Wow. Amazing. So oh, that's awesome. Dude. Uh, yeah. Wow. So for our listeners, that's amazing. You got to cost. You got to go ahead and, and, and explain and describe. Yes. Yeah. This, is, this is Prince 1999 on vinyl, 12-inch. Wow. Uh, this is the original cover. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's just serendipitous that, uh, you know, I pulled that out for our discussion because I knew we were going to be asked the 80s, 90s question. <laughs> And uh, I, was I, have a fr- I have a friend who would do anything for that. I think uh, I'm going to give her a shout out. Tracy Withrow. I know you're listening to this because uh, <laughs> I ask, I ask all my friends to listen to our podcast, but uh, <laughs> oh man, she's going to, she's going to die when she sees that. or she <laughs> that. <laughs> No doubt. No doubt. Well, uh, for mine, Thanks, Alex. Oh, no problem. No problem for mine is going to be this group. And that's a tribe called quest. What? <laughs> yep. And I'm sharing the 12 inch of the uh, single Check the Rhyme. And uh, I would say that I most relate to Tribe Called Quest. And if it's a particular individual in the group, it'll probably be Q-Tip because it's that blend of jazz and like hip hop. But again, for me, like even how I conceptualize hip hop culture, I don't separate it from jazz. I don't separate it from the blues and I don't separate it from salsa music. To me, all diasporic art forms our medicine it's all a part of the same tradition of survival you know so i think that tribe called quest does a really good job of blending it um and also sampling and pushing it forward the traditions and the music so that'll be my 80s 90s and they actually are perfect because they came in in the 80s and transitioned into the 90s my artist would be um, more of a collective and that is uh what is affectionately known as the dungeon family in Atlanta, um, and I, I definitely want to want to highlight uh, Rico Wade as sort of the, the orchestrator of the, the Dungeon Family that birthed Parental uh, Advisory, Outcast, Goody Mob, um, a host of others. But those are sort of the the foundational groups. And and I had a chance to talk to Rico uh, yesterday, actually, uh, ironically, um, and just really helping like understand what it is that like culture is in Atlanta. Like it's like culture is this thing that we all kind of can speak to, but sometimes it's hard to kind of put our finger on it. But I think when at Atlanta became what the city became, you know, or has become over the last 25 years, I feel like the Dungeon family 
and Outkast and Goody Mob and Big Rube and all of these individuals really helped and Cool Breeze and Backbone. Like they really helped um, like lay a foundation for quote unquote culture in Atlanta that has sort of rippled, you know, or like sent echoes throughout time and space and helped the city become what it is now. Um, I don't think Atlanta is what it is without hip hop. Um, and those individuals who who convened, you know, in Cyphers, you know, in Rico Wade's mom's basement. Basement, yep. Um, you know, really taking what they had and trying to make a better life and a better way for themselves, but ended up doing it for an entire city, state, region, you know, globally, et cetera. So I think like that, that's the thing that I, I think about when I, when I, you know, consider 80s and 90s, I think they were the the pioneers of Atlanta culture in a way that um, has really just helped us, you know, be be what we are right now. Yeah. And, and I don't have a dozen family or vinyl right in front of me, um, but Floyd, this is probably going to take you back, man. Do you remember this group? I can't see it. What does it say? Success and Effect. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember that group. Yeah. Yeah. Roll it up. So, yeah, this is like pre-Dudgeon Family Atlanta. Uh, probably predated uh, Outcast album about two or three years. But, yeah, yeah, that's some older Atlanta stuff, man. So, yeah, I also, I mean, I also credit the hip hop artist with really helping Atlanta overcome its inferiority complex. I mean, I think in the in the broader arts community, artists always thought, oh, I need to go to New York, or if I were only in New York, I'd be famous. And there was this just kind of inferiority complex that um, excuse or whatever, but it, it, it always felt like we were comparing ourselves to someone else. And I really credit hip hop artists with being the ones that embraced Atlanta, put Atlanta out there. I mean, they always spoke about being in Atlanta and they, they were proud of where they were. And I, I feel like they helped create a psychological shift that has, um, you know, ripple effect, you know, not only in the arts proper, but, you know, into other creative fields. And I would say even the business community. You know, Cost, you just blew my mind away when you when you pulled up that Tribe Call of Tribe Call Quest vinyl. So Drew knows, like I am. Uh, so I was gonna say, like for me, it is a Tribe Call Quest. It, it, I grew up listening to a Tribe Call Quest back in the '90s. I was really just fascinated with the beats, the music, the lyrics. Um, we got the jazz. It's it's got to be one, you know, my favorite song. Although Scenario comes a really close second, just because Busta Rhyme. He just blows it out of the water, but we got the jazz. It's just a, it's just an incredible combination of 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 beats, of sound, of lyrics. It's so smooth. Um, and Ron but, Carter's on that track too, right? On bass. Yeah, it it's a it's just a great. I'm gonna have to go out and pull. I don't have vinyl. I have I have a, 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 my CD. <laughs> I have to blow the dust off of my old CDs and put that in there. Um, but hearing y'all talk about uh, the South and the music from the, the hip hop music from the South. It, it uh, yeah, I was watching the, the um, hip hop evolution that's on Netflix. It was when it first started out, it's all, and I watched it, uh, whether I was on a treadmill or just at home and it was season three, I believe it was the last episode of season three where it really talked about the, you know, sort of outcast and, and goodie mob and, um, you know, the artists just saying like, you know, we don't, we don't have those, we don't live those experiences, you know, from, from East coast and West, we're, we're the South, we're not West coast, we're not East coast. And w this is what we need to be talking about. And it was just really neat to hear y'all 
kind of go back down memory lane. And uh, it just reminded me of that, uh, of that series. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got to, I got to shout out Floyd, you know, personally, man, I want to put you on the spot, but man, I feel like Floyd is like, it's like that center of gravity now kind of like helping like um, provide a platform for the history and really sharing the story, even just from like, as a cultural producer, like, he knows he like everybody, you know, in that project and has like his hands are like in so many different projects. And I think what Floyd is doing is so important. So I just got to personally give a shout out. Floyd is super humble, but like I said, he's the glue between Flux and Soul Food Cypher, but he's the glue in so many other, you know, projects as well. And the people that he knows and his influence expands to even some of the things that you've, that yeah. you've mentioned. And I'm, I'm super uh, glad to be associated with Floyd. On that Did y'all talk about bottom of the map at the beginning of the, and that's what I was like, kind of like uh, alluding to on that. So I got to. Yeah. So Floyd does Floyd. an amazing podcast called Bottom of the Map. That's about hip hop in the South. And it is the most, it, it's, it's an intellectual look at, did y'all talk about this before I joined? No, no. No, I All was right. going to actually ask him. I was, that was going to be one of my closing questions. I just wanted to pick Floyd's it's brain about about podcasting. I know he had mentioned, uh, Floyd, you've been podcasting since 2010. And I, I, I just jokingly said, you're, you're probably one of the pioneers of the podcast world. And here we have you on this podcast. And, you know, Drew and I are amateurs. Uh, we're fumbling our way through and we're getting better at it, you know, day by day. But uh, yeah, if you can, if you can tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Alex. And, and thank you, Ann. You know, I, um, I really appreciate all those those kind words. Um, I feel like to, to Alice's earlier point about sticking with what you love or kind of remembering your why, I think that um, as someone who's grown up in Atlanta and then had the chance to leave Atlanta for a while and then come back, you really just um, develop a bit of um, an appreciation for all of the things that made you who you are and the things that matter to you. And so in the same way that other cultures and communities uplift the things that are special about where they come from. I just really feel like it's important for us to do that same thing in Atlanta. And so a lot of my work um, really has been led by that, just wanting to be a part of the things that matter in Atlanta um, or the things that are kind of evolving in that space. And so um, I've been podcasting for quite some time in a variety of, of ways, but more recently um, I've been working with a podcast called Bottom of the Map which is a uh, Southern hip hop podcast. I want to give just all, you know, praise to our two co-hosts, um, Dr. Regina Bradley and Christina Lee. They're just amazing um, and sharp and witty and funny, all of those amazing things. And I'm glad to be able to work with them in creating this, but really what we want to do and what we try to do is really tap into those things that, that really speak to what, you know, has made, the South, what it is, you know, whatever that means, the, you know, the, the, the pretty moments, the, you know, the, the ugly moments, um, you know, we're not New York, we're not the West coast, but I think there's something really unique about what has evolved in this space. And I think in Atlanta in particular, um, you know, if, if we don't take the opportunity to uplift the, the icons of this space, you know, we can't we can't wait for other people to to do that, um, whether it be artists, you know, visual artists, whether it be um, recording artists. And I think that while the rest of the world has enjoyed all the amazing things that these artists have done, 
I just feel like we have to be able to keep that same energy and honor them here as well. And so that's why I wanted to, you know, highlight Rico Wade and Ray Murray and, and Sleepy Brown, Organized Noise and the Dungeon family, because I think as, I think that there's something interesting about why it's called the Dungeon family. You know, I think there's something really important about the word family and in the South and and what that means and signifies and what that set the foundation for. So all these other things that kind of come after that, that we sort of enjoyed the, the, the fruits of now in the business community, um, policymakers, it started with the family, a family that came together and decided to um, tell their stories in a way that just, you know, rippled and resonated with a lot of people around the world. So um, I'm glad to be in a space to capture some of those moments um, for a podcast audience. And I'm glad to be able to do work that still can tap into that because to me, that makes me feel like I'm honoring, you know, my parents, my aunts, uncles, cousins, all the people who poured into me and my community. Um, it feels great to be able to honor them with the work that I do um, in sort of a full circle moment. Cypher's complete. Yeah, well, I think that I was just going to add that I think that one of the things that Floyd does in the podcast that I know that for me gives it just a, a great meaning is he situates it in its place and its location. And I think that is some a way in which all of our work does connect. I mean, Flux Projects is very much about place. And we talk about, you know, the creative power of place um, and and. And Floyd, as it you know relates to hip hop, looks at how the place or the land, um, you know, I, the physical place, the land that has and what has transpired there um, impacts that and creates that story. And Alex is is looking at often it is the lack of land. I mean, it is removal of people from one land onto land that was stolen from another people. I mean, it, it becomes very complex, but I think through all of our work, we are working with artists and we are taking these ideas and we are, we are working through the complex problem of situating them um, in time into a layer of history, a layer of, of, of ownership, of location, of psychological stories. Um, and I, I don't think that comes to a logical end. I think you just, you know, it's kind of always in process and probably always will be. And we're observing it in this moment collectively. What a beautiful way to bring our episode to a conclusion as well. I can't thank the three of you enough for the time that you have all spent with us this afternoon to share a little bit about the amazing and vibrant arts community here in Atlanta. So I just wanted to say as we wrap up here, thank you. We're so grateful for your time. Oh, thank you. It is a pleasure to be with you, Drew and Roger, but Alex and Floyd, how nice. It's been a great thank conversation you. and a great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you all as well. Floyd, could you give our listeners real quick again how they can access your podcast? Sure. Uh, search for Bottom of the Map on all podcast platforms. Uh, bottom of the Map. Thank you. 
And we'll provide a link in our show notes as well. So all of our listeners can access the podcast, um, access to websites and other resources that we've discussed here today. And can't wait to share that all with you. So again, that was Ann Archer Dennington, Floyd Hall, and Alexander Costa-Costa from the Thriving Arts Community of Atlanta, Georgia. You can follow Flux Projects at Flux Projects. And uh, you can follow Costa at Cost one, CostX1 and, and at Soul Food Cipher. Check out links to resources, um, websites, and other art and media in our show notes, which you can find at www.commongooddata.com slash podcasts. Thank you all for listening. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.